Before I start the show, I have a few announcements. Today's guest, Mark Podolsky, is offering his $97 passive income launch kit for free to listeners of The Personal Finance Show. If you like what you hear in today's episode, just email support at thelandgeek.com and mention that you heard Mark on the show and you'll get the kit for free. And just a reminder that I'm giving away five copies of Cashflow Cookbook, a new book written by Gord Stein from episode 36 of the show. If you're interested in winning a copy, head over to bowhumphreys.com slash giveaway and enter. The giveaway runs for the whole month of July. This is The Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Mark Podolsky buys land from people that don't want it and sells it to people who do. He's done this over 5,000 times since he started in 2001, and he averages a 300% return on every deal. For example, if he buys a parcel of land for $2,500, he would sell it for $10,000, making a $7,500 profit. As Mark says, There's billions of acres of raw land. And literally a handful of people in the world doing this. So he launched thelandgeek.com to teach others how to learn the art of engineering geeky systems that create, grow, and protect your cash flow. When I heard about Mark's success in land, I had a few questions, and maybe you're wondering these things too. Who owns land, and why do they want to sell it to Mark, and for so little? Who's buying this land from Mark, and why would they pay four times the price? Why don't the buyer and the seller do this directly? Why do they need Mark to be in the middle? These and all the other questions you have about buying and selling raw land will be answered by Mark in this episode. But first, let's hear about Mark's personal finance story. So my dad was a wholesale grocer, and he knew the wholesale prices of just about every grocery item. Oh, that's that's really cool. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So when I was growing up, we would go to the grocery store. I'd say, Dad, can I have a pack of gum? And he'd say, <laughs> Mark, that gum's a dollar. It cost me 70 cents. So, no. Okay. And so I started really learning from a very early age that you never pay retail, ever. Wait, so uh, do you remember what were the lower margin items? Like, would he let you have a banana or something? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, he let me have a banana. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't crazy, but... <laughs> You know, but there was this always this idea of getting a deal, getting a deal, hmm. looking for a deal. That's not a good deal. That's a great deal. And because if, if you know anything about the wholesale grocery business, the margins are very, very low. It's about volume, right? It's, it's just you got to sell lots and lots of stuff to make any profit whatsoever. Exactly. So, you know, I kind of grew up with this scarcity mentality of, of money that, hey, look, you know, you got to watch every single penny. And I really internalized that. And so for me, like I, I loved it. I, I, I loved the idea of making money very early. I started investing in the stock market at 13. And the very first stock I ever bought was Intel at wow. $22 a share. And if I held on to that... Are you kidding me? Wait, no, I'm not kidding. Okay, I so- sold it at $33 a share. 
And I was so proud. I think I uh, heard on, on one of your podcasts that you're in your mid-40s. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, 46. 46. So uh, when you were 13, then uh, I'm not going to try to do the math in my head. But, <laughs> but, but 40... you know, that, that, that initial investment would be worth millions today. Yeah, I... yeah. So wait, uh, is this, the, this would be the 80s then? Am I right? This would be the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you, exactly. so okay, you thirteen. You bought your first stock, and and you're allowed to yeah, do so that. I, yeah, of course. But how I, how I, how does someone get a stock at, or or I mean, then how did someone buy stock? Well, I would just go to the bank, and my dad would let me do make these trades, and he was just the custodian. Okay. So, and the banker was really impressed with me. She's like, you're outperforming most adults. The stock I ever bought was uh, a biotech called Genentech. Okay. So, and if I held on to that, it would have been worth millions. So for some reason, I have like this knack of understanding and being very interested in finance at a really, really early age in business at a really early age. Well, where did you get the money uh, uh, for this uh, purchase? So I got the money because I'm Jewish and I had a bar mitzvah. Okay, so, so really, it just gift money. money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was gifted this money and I thought, well, I'll invest it, and that's what exactly what I did. It's really smart, Mark. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember at 13, I I was the guy that would go around in the summer, and I had the lemonade stand, and then I had big guy cookie company, and I had no costs, so I'd use my mom's flour and sugar and eggs. And we'd walk around the neighborhood, my, my buddy, uh, my neighbor and I, and we'd give out samples of these big cookies. And then we'd take orders. <laughs> and we made you know hundreds of dollars on, on cookies one summer. And then in high school, because my dad was a wholesale grocer and there weren't big vending machines, I would, I would get Snicker bars for my dad, like a case of Snickers, and I'd sell them for a dollar. Because you, you know where to get them wholesale. So you, I knew you, already, you already knew your sources. <laughs> yeah, my dad was just bringing them home anyways from the family. He didn't know that I wasn't eating them. I was, I was selling them. <laughs> and, then, and then I was also the, uh, if you wanted to go to prom or homecoming in high school, you had to go through me to get your corsage. I was like the corsage mafia. How, wait, and, how do you get a monopoly on corsages? What about the florists? Well, I, had, I went to all the florists and said, I will take your orders. <laughs> Wow, that's so and creative. I said, I'm, I'm here. And uh, they're like, great. So it, so it was like, you can't go directly to the floor. So you had to go to Mark if you wanted to get your corsage. And I made money that way. That's unbelievable. So I, I've never I heard always, of this. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of grew up like this hustling type of kid. Then in college, I, I really just thought, well, I'll, I'll go into business at some point. And I, it ended up that I started working with dentists, my first job out of, out of college. And I had a mentor, his name was Raj. And Raj was an MBA and a chemical engineer. And he really taught me, you know, a deeper level of finance. And, and we would look at how to recast earnings and P&Ls and balance sheets. Well, okay, and, what were you doing and, with the dentists? Yeah. You're, you're managing dental practices? Uh, we weren't managing them. We were actually brokering them. So when a dentist wanted to sell his practice, oh, yeah. he would go to, go to us and we would look at his numbers we would do the evaluation. We would help the buyer get the financing. So we prepare these bank packages. Sure. We would, we would do the cash flow statements so they could see their ROI on that investment. Well, how do you and, get into that though? How do you, how do you just stumble into, I'm going to broker dental practices? <laughs> so I, 
I actually cold called in the yellow pages. I thought I wanted to be in medical equipment sales. Okay. And the first company was A. It was, it was AFCO. And uh, the guy's like, if you can sell, I'll teach you the business. Wow. And I, did, I said, okay, great. And so I You I knew did. you could sell. You knew you could sell at this point because of what you've been doing. I guess this was all through high school. Right. This is, you didn't have yeah. a, did you have any traditional job? Did you work in the grocery store uh, to, with, your, with your dad? Well, my dad, you know, it was more of a warehouse. So oh, I would it was do, the, yeah, the wholesale. Yeah. Yeah. But that was like really hard work. I mean, you're talking about summers in 102 degree heat working on a truck in downtown St. Louis and it was dangerous. And there was one time where I almost was killed. They were like, you know, a bunch of guys are going to rob me. And, and my, <laughs> my grandparents who worked with my dad were like, Mark's not going on the truck anymore. Oh, so wow. I had a, like a, like a normal job after that. Oh, which was what? Well, you know, I would, I would basically, I would work at restaurants and I'd be a server uh, for a while, I sold uh, rollerblades and I would string uh, tennis rackets. So I actually I had two jobs. So in, during the day, I would string tennis rackets, sell rollerblades, and then at night, I would work at a restaurant. I, I really enjoyed working. What do you think the motivation was for you, like you doing all this entrepreneurial stuff? Was is it? Did you not want to be the warehouse guy? Did you not want to have to hustle for a little bit of margin? You know, I think I think that the motivation was to make my dad proud. Okay, well that's nice. Some type of of attention for being this kid that was interested in in all this stuff. Yeah. And I, and I and I think I I was addicted to that. And I was just like, okay, I can do more of this. I can do more of this. I had no interest in stuff. Like I I was kind of like my parents. I mean, I was very frugal. You know, if, if my friends had 20 CDs, I had I maybe had one. So I was interested in, in buying stuff or or accumulating stuff or having stuff. I was just interested in, in making money. Just uh, just like Warren Buffett. Kind of, yeah, kind of like just like Warren Buffett. <laughs> Maybe you are the Warren Buffett of St. Louis. Well, let's, let's not get crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, yeah. dental practices, you're, you're figuring out how to basically uh, buy and sell anything and, and maybe figuring out margin as you go along. So what happened was private equity groups started buying out these solo practitioners and we're hurting my business. And I was getting married at the time and I could see the writing on the wall and I wanted to move. And, and uh, so we moved to Phoenix, Arizona and I got a job with a company as an investment banker because I had some background in basically mergers and acquisitions. And this was just a larger play. So we were working with mid-market companies, five to $500 million in enterprise value and I absolutely hated it. I was, you know, I had a 45 minute commute to work and back. Uh, I was micromanaged. It was long hours. It was high pressure. And it got so bad for me, Bo, that I wouldn't get the Sunday blues anticipating Monday coming around. I'd get the Friday blues anticipating the weekend going by really fast. Oh, yeah, that sucks. And Monday. So, but why, why was the mergers and acquisitions? I, I mean, I, I understand the commute and the micromanagement and stuff, but this wasn't the sales and the, the uh, hustle that you enjoy? Yeah, but I had no control. Ah, that's so it. I'll okay. give you an example. Yeah. Right? So I'm about three days from a, from, from a closing. And, you know, we're, t- we're looking at like six-figure commissions. Wow. And these are long sales cycles. And the, the numbers come in 
and the quarter was was down, and the private equity group passed at the very last minute. Oh. This is after they spent you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on due diligence, letters of intent. I mean, going through the entire process, which takes you know almost a year to do, and then at the very last week, the numbers came in down, and they just passed. And you don't so, get your commission. It, nothing. I you, went from, were you getting yeah. paid on a salary basis too, though? Of, yeah, of course. Yeah. But the real money was in, in, in the bonus. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And so that was, that was kind of like, oh, this is not for me. Sounds really like, disappointing. I need, I need more control. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody else making the decisions for you in terms of something that huge and something you spend so much time on. If you're going to spend time on something, might as well have control over it, right? No, absolutely. And, and, you know, you got egos and people want perks and it's, it was just a, a nutty world and I'd really not enjoy it at all. And there was no sort of higher purpose to it, right? Like I'm waking up every day to make rich people richer. Yeah. I, have, I know the feeling. Yeah. That was kind of soulless. And I, my firm hires this guy and he's telling me that on the side, like a little side hustle, he's buying up raw land, pennies on the dollar. He's putting it online and he's making an average 300% return on his investment. So Bo, I'm looking at companies all day long and a great company, a great company has 15% EBITDA margins or free cash flow. Great company. Yeah, because 15% is a decent return for somebody to invest their money, right? That's not not bad at all. Right, right. Average company is a 10%. And I'm looking at companies all day long, less than 10%. So I had $3,000 saved up for car repairs. I go to New Mexico. I do exactly what my buddy says to do. I buy 10 half-acre parcels at an average price of $300 each. I put them online. Sure enough, the next few weeks, they all sell for an average price of $1,200 each. 300%. It worked. Okay. So I took all that money. I went to another auction in Arizona where I lived. Again, this is 2000. There's no, there's no one in the room. I'm buying up lots, acreage, and for nothing. And over the next six months, I made over $92,000 cash. So I go to my wife. I'm like, honey, I'm going to quit my job. And I'm going to invest in land full time. And she's pregnant. And she says, absolutely not. (laughs) So so I said, okay, fine. So I did land investing part-time for about 18 months until the land investing income exceeded the investment banking income. And then I quit. And I've been doing it full-time ever since. I've done over 5,200 land flips. So how much of your time... Well, let's step back for a sec. So raw land, what does this mean exactly? Like what... Who wants land and why are they, do they have it in the first place? Like, I just think, in my mind, nobody owns lands, the governments or something like that. So somebody owns this land. Right. So, okay. So let me kind of walk you through the model and the way that I sell it. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I consider it the ultimate subscription model. Sure. So, so essentially you're, you're in Canada, right? Yes. And I go and I say, oh my gosh. Bo Humphreys has 20 acres of land in Texas and he owes $200 in back taxes. How do you know that? How do you know about my taxes? Because it's public information. Okay. Okay. So, so I get this information from either the treasurer or the county assessor. Okay. So you're advertising to me that you have no 
emotional attachment to that raw land. You live in Canada, the land's in Texas. And the other thing you're showing me is that you're distressed in some way because when we don't value something, we don't pay for it. $200 is probably nothing, right, compared to the value of the land. And I don't, I don't even care enough to pay it off. Exactly, exactly. So what I'll do is I'll look at the comparable sales of that 10-acre parcel for the last 12 to 18 months. And I'll see, oh, it's $10,000. And then all I'm going to do is divide by four. And that gets me what Warren Buffett would call a 300% margin of safety. So I'm going to send you an actual offer of $2,500 for your 10-acre parcel in Texas. So you're like, well, I'm going to lose the property anyways if I don't pay these taxes. So you accept it. Now, in reality, 3 to 5% of people accept our quote-unquote top dollar offer. Okay, so not so, everybody. So you're, you, right. they don't accept it at that price or they don't accept it at all? They don't accept it at that price or yeah. at all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then we go through due diligence, make sure that you actually own the property. The back taxes are only $200. There's no liens or encumbrances. There's no breaks in the chain of title. And all this is actually outsourced to our uh, VA team in the Philippines. They have access to an American title company. It costs us about $11 to do our due diligence. So it's a we standard, just yeah, standard process the, that they can yeah, just Yeah, a little checklist. Okay. Exactly. So we get the GIS maps. We get the plat maps. We get the Google Earth uh, aerial views. And then we determine, okay, this is, this is a good property to buy. And so I buy it from you for $2,500. And then, Bo, I have a built-in best buyer to actually buy that property right away from me. Do you know who it is? Well, I listen to your podcast, so I, I do. <laughs> all right. It's, it's, the, the it's, it's the neighbors, yeah. Right, right. So, so oftentimes, the neighbors will buy it. And the way that I'll sell it is I'll get $2,500 as a down payment. Okay. So to get my capital out. So you get it back right away. Board. Right away, or maybe within six months, right? So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it a car payment, and I'm going to do owner financing on a promissory note. Let's say $449 a month at 9% interest for the next eight years. So essentially, what I've done is I've gotten my, my capital out, and I've created a passive income stream of $449 a month, and I don't have to deal with any renters, rehabs, renovations, or rodents. And because, yeah. because land yeah. is no, like, what if somebody builds on that land? You don't have to worry about what they're doing well, my, or anything like that? My, it's, it's my land. So if they don't pay that note and they make any improvements, I keep the improvements. Okay. Yeah. I bet like in terms of like people squatting on your land, is, is there any like kind of issues like that that might come up? You know, it's, I've been doing this full time since. Sure. 2001. I've had one squatter. Okay. There, that, that actually is a thing. I was yeah. just kind of uh, yeah. thinking of what the worst situation could be for you. So once somebody's yeah. on your land, they have a, like a camp, uh, like a camper or something. Yeah. I mean, we had to get the sheriff. They got him out of there, but then we had to clean it up. Um, you know, in legal fees, it costs about $600. Okay. But that's, that's a rare thing because this it's land really, is, really uh, yeah. it's, well, it's probably not being used anyway. No, it's raw land. I mean, the great thing about land is that there's nothing to maintain, nothing to protect. Nobody can steal it. Our contracts allow, you know, you know, you can't do anything illegal on it. You can't dump. It's really the ultimate asset. It's the only thing that lasts forever. 
It's going to outlive wow. you. It's going to outlive me. It's, you know, Ted Turner has a great quote, buy land. It's the only thing that lasts. Yeah, when this note is done and when it's paid off, and how, how long was the term again for the, the promissory note? In like eight years. So we, we try to make it a car payment. Yeah, and then after that, though, that person uh, owns the land outright and you're, and you're done. Right, right. But essentially, the game we play is can we create enough of these land notes where our passive income exceeds our fixed expenses and we're working because we want to, not because we have to. So you're buying a real thing, land, raw land, right. and, and apparently there's lots of land everywhere. Oh my gosh, this market is massive. There's billions of acres of land. That's and crazy. there's nobody doing this in the sense that you're not going to go on HGTV or the DIY network and see flip this land. It's just me in front of the computer. Because it's right? boring, right? It's super boring. <laughs> it's like the least sexy... Yeah, you know, real estate niche there is. You go to I like if I go to a party and someone asks me what I do, I'm like, I invest in raw land. They're like, oh, nice to meet you, and they go away. Yeah, right. Like if I said, oh, I, I flip houses. Like, oh, you do? Like, tell me. Like, that's interesting. They they get that, <laughs> but, but to, to flip, you know, to sell yeah. land is like the is really boring. So you're so the, you have this real land product, and it's, so, so it's not like you're just coming up with something. It's an actual tangible thing, and you're you're selling to somebody who actually seems to want it. Why do they want it? What Are they going to do something with it or they just don't want someone else to do something with it? The way that I look at it is I call it man jewelry, right? Okay. Are you married? Yes. Does your wife have jewelry? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the intrinsic value is what? <laughs> like nothing. It just makes her feel good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So men buy raw land because it makes them feel good. They own a real asset. It, makes, it, it increases their net worth to their banker. They like the idea that they have some place to go to. Like preppers love raw land. Military people love raw land. You know, essentially, there's a, there's a pig for every barn, but you know, investors, people that invest in gold and silver, people that want to hedge against inflation, there's all types of, of, of reasons. Maybe they just grew up hearing you got to own raw land. And for the longest time, they never could find anything they could afford. And here I come around and I give them an affordable piece of raw land. I had a guy call me the other day and all he asked me is, it was a 40-acre parcel in Nevada. He's like, can I shoot guns out there? I said, yeah. He's like, okay. And he bought it. So and that was it. That's all, that's all he wanted. So I'm guessing that you, yeah. the, the, your stats show that it is mostly men who purchase the land. Yeah. I'd say 80%, 80 of, our, of our customers are are men between 30 and 60 years old. Yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I understand uh, the value to someone who just wants something to them, for themselves, or uh, especially if it's next door and they're free to do whatever they want on it. I can see the value right. in that, yeah. Yeah, no restrictions. It's only limited by their imagination. They can improve it if they want. They can build something. They can build a house on it if they want, right? Yeah. Yeah. They can do whatever you absolutely. would do with land. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if they want to build a house, they actually have to pay off their note first. Okay. So that's it. A building permit. I yeah. think you said that earlier. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. actually really a great thing for you. So that's a condition. Yeah, is it a condition that you impose or is that just a standard rule? That's just a standard legal issue in the United States. If you don't own the land outright, you can't build. On it. Right. Okay. What about like mining it or, or uh, what are they in Texas? They do a lot of fracking. What about that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, you, you can't do that because I own the land. You can't, you can't make any, 
and you can't mine, you can't do anything like that until you, you own the land. So once it's out of it's your hands, that. though, that would, and you don't care because it's fully paid yeah, off, then, then yeah, they, they can do whatever they, they whatever's legal in their jurisdiction with it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the you, are you so you're saying I could do this here in in Canada? So we have clients from all over the world that invests in raw land in the United States. Hmm. Now, if you're going to do it in Canada, you have a few issues. The first issue is going to be your mailing. Well, I guess Canada is not a big deal, but it could be. So we have a software program that will automate your mailings using an API and a company called lob.com. Okay. So you just upload your mailings into the system. It would send out your mailings. Now, as it comes back, that's not a problem. What the problem is going to ha- occur when you have income. Hmm. And so the United States says, okay, you as a foreign investor, it's called FIRPTA, F-I-R-P-T-A. Okay. You are going to have 10% of your gains withheld. Okay, so withholding tax. As withholding tax. Yeah. And then you're still liable for Canadian income tax. Okay, so you pay so, the withholding tax in the states and the, and the whatever your rate of income tax is in Canada. Exactly. Now, with you know, our margins are three hundred to a thousand percent, so it's really not that big a deal, but it is something that you need to be aware of. Also, some people think, well, if I if I own U.S. land, it's gonna maybe I'm I'm exempt from paying U.S. Uh, property taxes because I'm not, you know, I don't live here. That's not true. You still are responsible for paying property taxes, and some people think, well. If I'm a foreigner, I own U.S. land, it's going to make it easier to get a green card. Also false. It will not be any easier to get a green card if you own a U.S. asset. So this is for if, now, because I guess the majority of the land is in the States. Well, have, do you know of anyone buying land within Canada who's a Canadian? Well, we looked into that model and because mm-hmm. of the frictional costs associated with buying land in Canada, it kills your margins. Okay. okay. So, and there's so much land here there's no reason to to kind of go through that. And you can there. look up the stuff like the back taxes and maybe we don't have an open system as much or? Yeah, I mean, when I looked into it, there's lots of, of legal issues and fees and lots of frictional costs. Yeah, it sounds like and Canada. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was not, it was not great. It was not great. So, we're, you know, we're, we're a great country, but uh, the open system that you guys have in terms of this kind of stuff, like access to real estate across all these states and, and all this land is, and just being able to move about, I mean, we can move about in provinces, but you know, you just have, it, it is the land of opportunity. So we can take advantage of this opportunity. You just have to worry about regular stuff like capital gains tax and, and withholding that kind of stuff or, or land tax, I guess it would be in, in Canada. So you started doing this and eventually you're like, I'm done with work, like with your day job? Okay, so yeah. So I quit my day job um, in 2001. And essentially, you know, from 2001 to 2010, I just made so much money. And what was interesting about that is I kind of went a little crazy. And it came so easily that Parkinson's law of money set in for me. Work expands to fill the time allotted. So if you give yourself a, a week to complete a project, it'll take a week. Give yourself the same project and give yourself three days, it'll take three days. So the more money I made, the more money I spent. I, you know, I thought, well, this is what successful people do. 
And so instead of a, you know, a nice home, I had to get a multi-million dollar home. And then I'm in my house and I see all my neighbors have luxury cars and I'm not even a car guy. So I had to get luxury cars. But you were always uh, so frugal uh, and when you were younger. What happened? I, I wanted to see what would happen okay. <laughs> the other way. <laughs> Your curiosity like, got I the just, best of I was, you. Yeah, I was curious. Like, and you know how like in, in every family, there's a, a spender and a saver? Yeah, usually. Yeah, yeah. So I was a saver. My wife was a spender. And I thought, well, that looks really fun. <laughs> it is fun. It was fun. We had a ball, and uh, but we were out of control. And so in 2010, about 40% of my note income went away. And why, why was that? Oh, well, note income, because they, they were all done. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, because the, you know, it was between buying groceries or paying my, their note, because the, the U.S. economy took such a hard hit. Oh, okay. So your notes actually went away. They, they, uh, yeah. But so you, but in, in those cases, as you said, your, your original investment was taken care of with a down payment because that's your model, but it was just right. this passive income that was replacing your full-time job that went away. Right. Right. But I, I created such a high personal overhead for myself mm, that yes. I needed that, I needed that money. And so it really was this huge kick to the head and really crushed my ego. Yeah. We, we were forced to sell the big house. Uh, we went to a way smaller home. We got rid of the private schools. I had a, a nanny five days a week. I had a housekeeper five days a week. We got rid of the, all the staff. And suddenly we started finding out like what's really important to us and kind of going back to like this very simple values of having meaningful relationships and enjoying the kids and not trying to be something we weren't and live this sort of ego driven type of existence. And then things just got way better. You know, my relationships improved. I was a lot less stressed out with a lower overhead and it really helped me focus on building the business to the next level using systems and automation. So now we're 90% automated with software and I work about two hours a month in Frontier Properties, and we did over $2 million last year. You know, it was really just interesting how that all kind of, you know, like when you, everything's kind of opposite, right? Like you, you think that what's going to make you happy actually kind of makes you unhappy. And then what, what, what you think is going to make you unhappy, sort of like living disciplined and, you know, working hard and doing things challenging, like end up, you end up getting a lot more for it. There's Isn't more it, value to, to it. There's right? more real value in yeah. it, right? Yeah. Like, there's self-esteem in it. And, and that really was uh, sort of an eye-opener for me. So, so the, the path for you was you figured out you could do this land thing and, and then it, like you would buy a little bit and then and buy and sell and then more and more as you got more capital. But as you went on, you, this started taking up all of your time. That's what you're saying. Like you just tried to do as much as you could before you realized all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was just working in the business. I wasn't creating systems or automation. It was just coming in too easily too. Yeah. And so like what, what would have been a typical way? So like before you did the automation, before you have these systems to mail and, and, and check, you know, do the due diligence and all that stuff, would you have just sent a bunch of emails or, or letters out to people like on a daily basis? What did you do on your own before you, you systematized yeah, I mean, I, it all? 
I had a virtual assistant in South Carolina. So Janie was doing my mailings, but I would just basically sort of have these templates for emailing people to make their payments and, and doing all that. So I had some automation in there and I had some systems, but nothing like what it is today. What about setting up notes? Like, how does that, like that, like a lot of this stuff, you know, it's, it's really sounds simple. You have systems going, but uh, you know, a lot of people would be like, well, how do I set up a promissory note? That sounds like way beyond my scope. Yeah. So we actually have a software program that embeds those contracts okay. called geekpay.io. Great. So basically we automate the back end of our business using that. And so we kind of take all that pain and all that legal, those legal issues out of, out of it for our clients. We wow. write all those contracts. So, so you basically figured out how to, you just, you knew the system and you figured out how to automate all the bits of it. And so what, what do you, what do you actually have to do yourself that now that is not just delegating? What, what takes up yeah. your time? So now I have a weekly meeting with my team Yep. and I look at the numbers, how many offers went out, how many offers were accepted, how many deals are pending, how many deals are we marketing and how many deals do we close. And then, you know, my main role is strategy. Like how do we improve the, you know, the customer service? How do we improve the customer experience? What are some other marketing channels? You know, always thinking and asking myself the question, well, if everything's going to change, what's not going to change? And kind of sticking to these simple sort of metrics like, well, I think in my business, the things that aren't going to change is everybody's always going to want a good deal and everybody's always going to want a real asset like land. Mm -hmm. So if that continues, then, you know, this business really has, you know, it's a strong, long, long-term business. So you're the- when I first started, I, I was scared. I'm like, this is a lark. There's no way these margins can are sustainable. And yet as of today, they were still at 300 to 1,000%. Yeah, that, that's crazy. And it's because people, you know, if you think back to the original, uh, you know, you offer somebody $2,500 for a $10,000 piece of land based on your analysis, people were ready to just not pay the taxes and let that go for nothing, right? Is that, is that the idea? So the $2,500 offer is like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And you're, we also have a very inefficient market. Hmm. So nobody really knows the value of their land. It's what a, a buyer and a seller really agree to. And they're not going to go and do, like when you say 2,500, they don't care enough to go and do the due diligence that you just did. Right. Then they would be like, oh, it, it's worth 10, so I want five. Or, you know, they, if they were, if they were going to do that, they would probably be trying to you know, sell their own land themselves, I guess. So you started with $3,000 and people can start with whatever. What's the cheapest piece of land that you uh, f- I've ever I mean, seen? I, people, have given me, people have given me land. So zero. Uh, <laughs> but that's, zero. you, you got to be yeah. established a little bit to probably get that handed to you. Well, you know, I've had clients like, the, you know, it's crazy. Like they had no money. So a guy like uh, Paul Mendel has got no money. He, he locks up a deal. He tells his seller it's going to take him 90 days to do due diligence. He's going to close in 90 days. Well, it takes us two days to do due diligence. Yeah. So what he does, he sends out neighbor letters and the neighbor's like, oh, I want to buy it. So he does a dual closing. So he uses the neighbor's money to pay off his seller. And then he just takes the, the spread there. So in that scenario, he locks it up for $2,500. He sells it to the neighbor for 10000 cash. 
The neighbor gives him 10,000 cash. He gives $2,500 to the seller of that 10,000. The seller deeds the property to Paul. Paul then deeds the property over to his new, his new buyer and in the process makes $7,500 and an infinite ROI just by locking up the deal. And he learned, now you said the cash deal. So some of these are cash, some of them are note deals. Are the cash ones few and far between? No, no. I mean, I, I used to only flip for cash. I, 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 cash is fine, but I think that it's, it's a hustle. Like I'd rather have the notes. Because but you want passive income. I want the passive income. And even if I need cash, I can sell 12 months of that note cash flow to an investor, get my money back out, redeploy it, and then have that passive income revert back to me in 12 months. So I get two bites of the apple, so to speak. So the, the, clear, uh, the clear and obvious risk to me when I, when I hear the story, uh, that one specifically, is that he's not going to find a buyer. Right, right. So you know, out of the 5,200 deals that I've done, I've never been stuck with a piece of land. There's a system. You have these resources, these networks. Yeah. You're never worried about not finding a buyer in the States because yeah. you have this system that's, well, proven itself, as you said, over 5,000 times. Never. I've never been stuck with a piece of land. My clients have never been stuck with a piece of land. I mean, but think about it though, Bo. Like if you lock up any asset, I don't care what it is, 25 cents on the dollar, you've got someone else at the end of that deal. Why doesn't everybody do this? <laughs> so it's hard, right? Yeah. That's, that's the reason everybody doesn't do this. Okay. Because ultimately, you know, if it were easy, everyone would do it. There's no real estate niche that is easy. No. And so when you break down all the pieces of this, this is a business. Mm-hmm. Business is hard. And if you're not able to embrace the suck and sort of be uncomfortable or be comfortable being uncomfortable and kind of being a beginner again, which a lot of people have a hard time with, it's really hard to, to do this. And people don't want to start, uh, start something and, and uh, learn from scratch. But you could do, like you said, so there's a free piece of land, but maybe you have a couple hundred dollars and you could just give it a try and see if it works for you without very much risk. Exactly. Like the risk, sorry, the risk uh, on top of the fact that, you know, that I thought you couldn't find a buyer, but it seems you can. I think the risk is personal. The risk is that you're not going to do the work. Right. And do, do right. you see that? You have, you have a lot of students that come through uh, uh, LandGeek, right? Yeah. I mean, our training is really good. So it's not, it's not our students, but that do it. It's, it's people that try to do it on their own. I see. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's kind of, I kind of uh, equated to, to climbing Mount Everest. So if you go up there with the Sherpa, you're going to get up there, you know, safely. Yeah. If you go up there by yourself, you could end up dying on the mountain and, that happens a lot. We don't want to ask for help, right? We're like, I can figure yeah, this out yeah. myself. I can navigate this. Even though Mark's done 5,200, it's not worth paying. Do you, do you have a, a flat uh, sort of training fee or is it uh, that, that you could mention? Yeah. I mean, we, we have, you know, all types of training, everything from free to, uh, you know, really high-end one-on-one, you know, coaching. So we have everything in between, but you know, the best place to start is thelandgeek.com and people can download for free our passive income blueprint, get their ebook, how to avoid the three feet of land buying mistakes and get the podcast delivered each week to their email inbox. And if they want a course on it, we have a $97 
passive income launch kit. We'll give it to them for free, Bo, if they just email support at thelandgeek.com and put in the subject line, you know, Bo Humphreys or Bo. Really? Well, that's nice of you. So people can kind of get a good taste for free. Like you, you can have other investments. If, if you were looking for something interesting and different, you know, especially if you're in the States, I know some people listening are in, in the States. It's not all Canadians. You, you can basically just follow, follow Mark's lead, right? You just, you're setting, why, why are you sharing all this information with everybody? Why, why don't you keep it all for yourself? That's exactly what my wife said after I started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like you're you're creating your own competition. And so I said, well, let's do the math. Yeah. So there's billions of acres of raw land and literally a handful of people in the world doing this. You, me, a million people could come in this niche. We're all going to run out of money before we run out of deal flow. And so I said to her, I said, look, if it ever comes to the point where a seller calls me and says, Mark, I got your offer, but I got three others just like it. And yours is the lowest. I'll stop teaching people. Okay. And it happened. So, <laughs> you know, and the other thing about teaching is that it's so gratifying. Almost on a daily basis, I get so much gratitude for, hey, you helped me retire my spouse. Hey, I was able to quit my job today. Hey, we're traveling around the world doing this business now. We quit our jobs. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's it's really like I, I can now die in peace. It's it's so nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 that's the thing. You're creating this passive income for yourself as well. In addition to the land, now you can you can have the students and the you know the course fees and stuff too. Something that you are sharing your knowledge. And but it's not for everybody. That's that's. I mean, obviously, the, everybody would do this. You said, like you said, it's work. But if you're willing to put in the work. You know, uh, just give it a try and see if it's something that you might like. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. But it might yeah. be if you're if you're especially if you're not if you're not happy with what you're doing or you have other investments, but you're looking for something to be more active. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that first of all, there's nothing completely passive, right? Even no, if you, yeah, of course, dollars, yeah. You know, like you got to figure out a way to, to to maximize that capital. I mean, that takes work. So you know, essentially, I, I think that when it comes to creating a passive income stream, there's really nothing better. It's got a low cost of entry. You don't have anything physical and you've got a built-in, you know, pain for the, for the buyer to keep on paying you. And it's a sort of a set it and forget it type of system until they pay off their note. Well, it sounds like a really cool option and it's something I didn't know about at all until, uh, you know, I started listening to your podcast and, uh, and uh, heard about the system. And uh, I think a lot of people still don't know about it, right? So you, you're going to keep telling them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the, thelandgeek.com. Thelandgeek.com. And uh, yeah, you go sign up and then send the email to support at thelandgeek.com with, uh, exactly. with my name. Or say that you heard yep. heard about uh, Mark and the Land Geek on the on the podcast, and you get that uh, free uh, ninety seven dollar course. Exactly. Well, that's very generous of you, Mark, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. So, uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Bo. I really appreciate it. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. 
Next week's guest will be Paul Gilbo, co-founder and lead software developer at Perfect.com. 